Grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. This morning, I got good news and I got bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? Okay, let's take a poll. Let's take a poll. Let's see what we got here. How many of you would rather hear the bad news before the good news? Bad news first. Okay, how many of you would rather hear the good news first? Interesting, interesting. Okay, well, I think the majority, by a little bit, said the bad news first. So here's the bad news. The bad news is that we are officially in October, and that means we are getting dangerously close to the return of my arch nemesis, Snow. (laughs) But the good news, the good news is that It's only October, so we get fall weather, we get football, we get bonfires, and we get pumpkin spice everything. Amen? All right. I'm glad I'm not the the only one who loves pumpkin. Now, you like pumpkin, Jeremy? All right. Stop. Just stop. No. You may not agree with my bad news, my good news. You may be one of those crazy people who likes snow. But it's, it's interesting. They did an actual study of this where they asked people, which would you rather hear first, good news or bad news? And guess what? 78% of people chose the bad news first. So if you said bad news first, you're normal. And if you said good news first, well, uh, you get the picture. But most of us, we, we choose to hear the bad news first. Why? Because we hope that the good news will outweigh and overshadow the bad. We want to end on a good note. And oftentimes, we have to know the bad news before we can see what's so good about the good news. And that's how the gospel of Jesus is. That word gospel literally means good news. It's the good news that Jesus has saved us from our sin and given us a right relationship with God. But in order for us to understand the good news of the gospel, we need to know the bad news. In fact, we will never fully know why the good news of the gospel is so good until we understand why the bad news is so bad. If the gospel is the solution, we must first know the problem. So this morning, our message is affectionately titled, Blue Valley, We Have a Problem. (laughs) And it's a big problem. This problem is the bad news of the gospel, and we find this problem in the book of Romans. We started walking through this letter a couple weeks ago, if you've been with us, and you'll remember we said Romans is written by a guy named Paul who was a Pharisee, a Christian hater turned missionary. He encountered Jesus, his life was changed forever, and he was sent out on missionary journeys. He he went out planting churches and raising up leaders and writing letters to those churches, which is a lot of what our our New Testament is today. And uh, Romans was written on Paul's third missionary journey to the church in Rome. We said that this church was facing some division. There were Jewish Christians who, you know, they knew the Old Testament. They knew all the laws and the customs. They were insiders, so to speak. Then there were these Gentile Christians in the same church who didn't really know much of the Old Testament. They did know all the laws and customs. They were considered outsiders. And Paul wrote this letter with this cultural tension in mind, and he laid out his most thorough presentation of the gospel. And Paul knew that in order for his readers to understand the power and beauty of this message, they had to first grapple with the tough part of the message, the bad news, the fact that Jew and Gentile both have a serious problem, the same problem that you and I still face today. 
We find this problem in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. That's our passage today. And I got to tell you, of all the great and beautiful and encouraging and wonderful passages we find in Romans, I'm going to guess this one is not at the top of the list for most people. These are not the kinds of verses you will find at Mardell's painted on home decor. <laughs> these are not what I call coffee cup verses. You probably will not put one of these on your family Christmas card. These are painfully difficult verses, and yet these are some of the most important for us to understand. So we're going to walk through this passage verse by verse. We're not going to skip any hard parts. And then I'm going to give you three things that we can do, that we must do in response. So let's start in verse 18. Look there with me now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Uh, this verse right here, this is kind of the big idea of this passage. Paul explains that God's wrath is being revealed against our sinfulness. Wrath is one of those Bible words that's not very popular. In the world's eyes, wrath is pretty much non-existent. If God exists, then he's kind of like the, the grandpa or the fairy in the sky. He loves everyone, judges no one, and just wants us to be happy, right? But wrath is also not very popular in the church. We don't like to talk about it or think about it too much. In fact, entire denominations and churches have completely eliminated any talk of sin or judgment or wrath. One of my favorite songs to sing in church was the one we sang earlier, In Christ Alone. Do you love that? Such a good song. It's one of the clearest gospel-centered songs to ever be written. And there's this line in the song where it says, you don't hear this often in worship songs, it says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Several years ago, there was a particular denomination that was updating their hymnal. And they wanted to add that song, but they wanted to change the lyric from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. And Keith Getty, who wrote that song, he rejected their request because he understands what the Bible teaches. God's love is magnified because his wrath has been satisfied. We can't have God's love apart from his wrath. I, I heard a pastor one time explain it like this. He said, people say... I believe in a God of love, not a God who gets angry. If you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God of love because if you never, ever get angry about anything, you don't love anything. But if you love and you see the thing you love threatened, you're angry. Think about it this way. Imagine you see someone harming your child. What are you going to feel inside? Not too warm and fuzzy, is it? But down in the South, we say you'd be madder than a wet hen. You ever seen a wet hen? Neither have I. But apparently, they're mad. Okay, that's all I know. Look, if we were to see someone harming our child or any act of injustice done towards an innocent child, we're going to rightly feel some anger, some, some wrath. And if we as sinful people feel that way, then how much more does God? The Bible makes clear that God has wrath. But it's important to clarify, God's wrath is not a hissy fit or a temper tantrum. God's wrath is his fair and just response to sin and evil. 
A God who does not have wrath towards evil and injustice, but just turns a blind eye or looks the other way, he would not be a very loving and good God. So God's wrath is not the problem. The problem is that we're a part of the injustice and evil that his wrath is against. Verse 18 tells us that God's wrath is revealed because we have suppressed the truth. What does that mean? What truth have we suppressed? Well, let's keep going in verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul tells us God has plainly revealed himself to everyone. How? Through the things that have been made. Creation is, is screaming out to us that there's a creator who exists. It's through the world around us. It's obvious to see that God exists and we can even recognize some of his attributes. So here's what this means. This means everyone knows God. There's no such thing as an atheist. Everyone, everywhere, of all time knows that God exists. But here's how we respond. We reject God and suppress the truth. We shove it down. And we can try and push down our knowledge of God. We can try to stuff it in the junk drawer of our lives. We still know that God exists. Everyone does. And those who don't know, they don't know because they don't want to know. During World War II, the first city with a concentration camp that Allied forces liberated was in Ordruf, Germany. When American soldiers arrived, they found hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies General Patton came on the scene. He couldn't believe that people in this town had allowed this atrocity to go on, but they all denied any knowledge of it. So when he called out the, the mayor and his wife and every able-bodied person to come out and help dig graves and bury the dead, and they had a funeral. And that night after the funeral, Patton found out the mayor and his wife had hanged themselves. They left a note behind that basically said, we didn't know but we knew. That's suppression. We are not ignorant of God. We just simply choose not to believe. And the Bible makes clear that all of us, all of us are guilty of this unbelief. Look at the end of verse 20. He says, no one, we're all without excuse. I mean, no one's going to stand before God one day and say, God, if I had only known you were real, if I had only had a little bit more evidence, I would have believed in you. From the most primitive and remote tribe in the jungle to the most advanced society in the world, we all know the truth about God. And yet, not only do we suppress it, we do worse than that. Look at verse 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When we reject God and we suppress the truth that he's revealed to us, what do we do? Do we give up religion and, and stop worshiping? No, we just worship something else. God made us worshipers. We were designed to worship, and worship is what we do. Uh, they produce these spiritual surveys of our nation. 
And they've revealed that there's this entire category of people in our country today who are spiritual nuns, N-O-N-E, not (laughs) N-U-N. So what that means is when they're asked about their religion or spirituality, what they do is they check that box, none. But here's the reality. According to this, that's not true. Everyone worships something. Everyone has a religion. Everyone has a God, even those who don't know it, even those who are totally against religious institutions, they still worship. If you look at our culture, you'll see it. You'll see a lot of passionate worship. We see it in sports. We see it in politics. We see it in celebrity culture. We see it in shopping centers. We even see it in our perfectly manicured lawns. We are devoted people. We are passionate about what we worship. We serve our gods. We're loyal to our religions, and we even tithe. Yes, tithing is not just a church thing, but everyone tithes to what they find most important. Rejecting God does not lead to non-worship. It leads to false worship. That's why we see this word several times in this passage. It's the word exchange. When we reject God, we make a trade, and it's a bad one. When I was a kid, I I loved baseball cards. I collected them and traded them with friends in my neighborhood. And one day, one of my friends convinced me to trade him my mint condition Barry Bonds rookie card. Now, this was before we knew all that we know now about Barry Bonds. We thought at the time these cards would be worth millions of dollars one day, and they were going to pay for our college. We were... So wrong about that. But this Barry Bonds rookie card, it was my prized possession. I loved it, and yet I traded it away, and I, just, I instantly regretted it. I felt terrible about it. I, I thought, man, that was a bad deal. But guess who's laughing now? <laughs> Trading God for something else is always a bad deal. Who in the right mind would do that? But Romans 1 tells us we did that. We didn't honor God. We didn't give thanks to him. Instead, we became fools. And we exchange God, the creator, for his created things. What does that mean? Well, this is what the Bible calls idolatry. And we see it everywhere in the Bible. It's a major theme that we often miss today because when we hear the word idol, we think of the golden calf. We think, well, I don't have any golden statues in my closet that I pull out at night and bow down to. I'm not an idol worshiper. Here's the scary thing. We can make an idol of anything. An author by the name of Brad Bigney wrote a book called Gospel Treason. He defines idolatry like this. He says, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. An idol can be anything or anyone that sits in the place of God in our lives. Even good things can become idols. Often what happens is we have this good desire inside of us, but it grows to be too big. James 1, 14 through 15 says this. He says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see that? Good desire to death. Let me give you an example this morning of something good becoming an idol. I love my kids. I just saw my wife leave and I thought, uh-oh. That's not, <laughs> that means something's going on with them. I'm now thinking about that. But I love them. I want to take care of them. I, I desire for them to grow up safe and healthy and have a good life. This is a good desire. 
No one would fault me for wanting that. But when I love my kids, listen, when I love my kids more than I love God, they become an idol. And let me tell you, that's a real temptation, parents. You agree? When my kids become my idols, it begins to manifest itself in all kinds of sins. Fear and anxiety over harm coming their way or losing them. Anger and frustration when they don't live up to my standards for them. And ultimately, disappointment and despair when I realize that God did not design us to worship our kids. Here's another example. You want to be successful in your career. No one's going to fault you for that. That's great. That's not a bad desire. But when success becomes your idol, again, it manifests itself in sin. You'll neglect your family and your church because you got to work hard to get to the top. You'll lash out in anger when someone threatens your path to success. You'll cheat and lie and hurt other people in the process, and eventually you're going to burn out because God did not design us to worship our careers. Look, we could go on and on because anything can be an idol, a hobby, a person, a relationship, a possession, a sport, money, the approval of others, physical health, entertainment, anything. So how can we know what our idols are? How do we know what we worship? Well, the best way, as Bigney says in his book, is to follow the trail of your time, money, and affections. Think with me about your time. What do you choose to do when you have free time? What do you always make time for? Think about your finances. What do you spend your money on? What what do you save up your money for? Think about your affections. What do you talk about the most and think about the most? What do you worry about the most? If you answer those questions honestly and you follow that trail, at the end you will find a throne with an idol on it. And anything in that place besides God is idolatry. So in light of these verses, here's the first thing we need to do. Number one, recognize your position. Recognize your position. Look, this is not a passage about those bad people out there. This is about us. This is about you. This is about me. We've done these things. I've suppressed the truth about God. I chose to reject him. I chose to worship other things. And this means based on my record, based on my terms, I am under the wrath of God. And so is everyone else. We don't deserve God's love. We, don't, we deserve his wrath. This is not a popular message. This won't win you many friends, but it's true. And it's not loving to keep this from people. We cannot possibly understand our need for God's grace and mercy until we understand our default position before him. And this position leads to more problems for us. Let's keep going in verses 24 to 27. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
There's this important phrase that's repeated three times in this passage, and it sounds a little strange to us. It did to me at first. So we need to really examine it in its context. It's this phrase, God gave them up. What does it mean for God to give us up? As you can probably guess, it's not a very fuzzy concept. This same phrase is used in other places in the New Testament to describe someone being given over to judgment. So the idea here is that we say to God, God, I don't want you and I don't need you. I'm doing things my way. And God simply says, okay. He gives us what we want. He allows us to experience the consequences of our choices. It's like removing a dam and allowing the water to run its natural course. That's what it means for God to give us up. He removes his hand of restraining grace, and he allows us to experience the horror of life apart from him. And that's when things go from bad to worse. Paul lists out the exact consequences of our rejection of God. He gives us one specific example, then a long list. And the specific example Paul uses to illustrate what happens when we reject God is the practice of homosexuality. That's what we see in verses 26 and 27. He says, men and women gave up natural relations for unnatural ones with the same sex. And look, we, we recognize rightly that this is a tough topic for a few reasons. Number one, this is a difficult topic because what our culture is telling us right now is totally opposite from what Scripture says. In fact, if you hold to the biblical view of sexuality, you will be labeled hateful and cruel. Second reason this is a tough topic is because we as Christians have not done a very good job with this issue. I think what happened is that culture shifted so quickly and drastically that the church was caught flat-footed. And so Christians generally did two things. They either lashed out in fear and judgment, or they openly embraced the new sexual revolution. And as a result, we as Christians have hurt many people and damaged our witness. A third reason this is a tough topic is because this is deeply personal for many, including many in this room. Some of us have family members and friends who are gay. And we know in a room this size, there are some who may be struggling with an attraction to the same sex here today. So yeah, this is a tough topic today, but these are the exact reasons that we can't be silent on this. We have to be clear. We have to address it. And this is one of the most important, one of the clearest passages in the Bible on homosexuality. It's important, though, that we understand the context, what Paul's doing here. What Paul's doing is giving us a clear example of what happens when God is rejected and displaced from the center of our hearts. One of the biggest consequences of rejecting God is sexual confusion and sin. When we reject God, we depart from his good and perfect design for us. That's what homosexuality is. It's, it's departing from God's original good design for our sexuality. That's why Paul uses the language natural and unnatural. The, the practice of homosexuality is a picture of man's rejection of his creator and his design. That's why Paul's using it here. But what Paul is not saying and what the Bible never says is that homosexuality is a worse kind of sin 
or in a different category of sin from other sexual sins. Homosexuality is sinful, and it's contrary to God's design. Just as premarital sexuality, lust, pornography, and all other kinds of sexual immorality are also sinful and contrary to God's design. In my time in student ministry, I counseled many students who struggled with same-sex attraction. They came to me with, with, with fear, depression, even thoughts of suicide and self-harm. Some of them afraid that their church-attending Christian parents would disown them for being gay. Some of them terrified of going to hell because they'd been told by a pastor that these feelings they felt were the unforgivable sin. Some of them who thought the only way to find happiness in life was to fully embrace the gay lifestyle. Listen, friends, we've got to speak the truth in love here. Truth in love. The problem with those who struggle with homosexuality is the same problem that you and I have. We've all rejected God. <clears throat> and the solution for those who struggle with homosexuality is the same solution that you and I need. It's the gospel. It's to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus. We may have different struggles and different sins, but we all need the same Jesus and the same forgiveness. Paul makes that abundantly clear in this last section of verses. Look at verses 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. <laughs> Man, this is a who's who list of all the different ways rejection of God manifests itself these are the consequences we face. It's all kinds of sin and evil and relational damage. And just in case you've been all high and haughty up to this point, he even throws in disobedient to parents. So you know he's talking about you. That's the point. This is all of us. All of us have rejected God and sinned against him. And as verse 32 says so clearly as a result, we deserve to die. That brings us to the second thing we need to do. Number two, we need to realize our penalty. There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to living a life of rejecting God, and the ultimate consequence is spiritual death. It's dying and spending an eternity in hell under the wrath of God. And this is as bad as bad news gets. This is a massive problem that Paul's just laid in our laps, <clears throat> and he's sticking his finger right in our face and saying, I'm talking about you. Look, we've got to realize and understand the penalty that we deserve. This is not fiction. This is not fairy tale. This is reality. But praise God, the book does not end here. <laughs> Be pretty sad if it did. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he kept writing 15 more chapters. And i got to share with you some of what he said, even though we're going to get to that later. 
See, even though we rejected God, Romans 5.1 says that we can have peace with God through his son, Jesus. Even though we sinned against him in every way imaginable, Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we deserve eternal death for our sins, Romans 6.23 says that God has given us a free gift, which is eternal life in Jesus even though we earn God's judgment fair and square, Romans 8, 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even though we despise God's love, Romans 8, 39 says there's not a single thing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And even though we have worshipped the creation instead of the creator, Romans 10, 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart, you will be saved. The bad news is bad, but friends, the good news is so good. The good news of the gospel triumphs over and outshines the bad news all day, every day. We have a problem, but praise God, he's provided a solution. So our application today is simple. It's the third and last point. We recognize our position, we realize our penalty, and we respond to the gospel. If you have never made the decision to follow Jesus Trust in him today. Believe in Jesus today and you'll be saved from this judgment, forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. Don't wait, but believe today. If you're already a follower of Jesus, here's your application. Respond to the gospel again. It's not about trying harder or getting better or doing more. It's about trusting in Jesus more and more. You can't live this Christian life. I can't live this Christian life in my own strength. We need Jesus. All of us have the same problem, and we all need the same solution. It's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray.